Our sermon text this evening comes from Psalm 17. So please turn there in your copy of God's Word. Psalm 17, our text will be uh, verse 15 in particular, but I'll read the whole psalm for the sake of context. Before we read, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you to be the only living and true God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And we come before you desiring to see your glory redound in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O God, that you would indeed show us Jesus this evening and that our hearts might be stirred and moved toward him to seek him early. And, O God, we pray that you would build up your saints, that you would strengthen the afflicted, that you would encourage uh, the the faithful, and that you would cause us all to persevere uh, in this Christian pilgrimage that we have upon this earth. We pray, O God, that you would now open your word unto us and allow, allow our souls to be refreshed in your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth out not of goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am pos- uh, purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips have I kept I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth, like as a lion that is is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked which is thy sword from men which are thy hand O Lord from men of the world which have their portion in this life and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure they are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes as for me I will behold thy face in righteousness I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness amen thus is the reading of God's word Well, this morning we considered the Christian's longing, and we saw how that in this life, even in the midst of afflictions, we always have this deep longing to know God, to know God in Christ. Well, the reality of the matter is that longing really will never truly and fully be satisfied in this life. In this life, we'll always be seeking, panting after Christ, but until we see him face to face, In this life, we merely see him in a glass, in a mirror, darkly. But there's coming a day when we will awake and behold the glory of the triune God and the glory of the resurrected and glorified mediator 
in heaven, and then will our souls truly be satisfied with pleasure, the unspeakable, with such joy that has not entered into the minds of men. And this is the Christian's great hope. This is the ultimate source of the Christian's satisfaction. And so as we consider verse 15, we will consider the following doctrine, that the Christian's hope for everlasting satisfaction produces present confidence in God. The Christian's hope for everlasting satisfaction produces present confidence in God. And uh, we'll divide our, our text into three portions. First of all, considering the contrast of David's hope with the, with the wicked's. Secondly, the object of David's hope. And lastly, the effect of David's hope. Psalm 17 is written at a time when David is uh, afflicted, pursued by persecutors. You know from the history of, of David's life that he was persecuted by Saul. Uh, Saul was jealous. His, his own father-in-law was jealous that David, this mighty man of God, was rising the, uh, in the ranks, becoming renowned among the people of Israel. The women would even sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And so Saul's heart was turned against David, and he began to persecute him, uh, to, to, to chase him, to plot, to put him to death. And this greatly afflicted David, not, not only for the threat of his life, because if it was merely an enemy seeking to, to kill him, he could have borne that, but it was one that was supposed to be close to him. You recall that David married Saul's daughter. Uh, we might have issues with our in-laws, but I trust none of us have been in this vexing situation like David has been. And so David cries unto the Lord as an oppressed man. But notice the character of his prayer. It's one of confidence, one of faith, utter certainty in God's answer. Hear the right, he says, O Lord, attend unto my cry. And let my sentence come from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. David is also assured, for he knows his own faith before God. He says that God has proved his heart and visited him in the night, tried him, and found nothing. David was a man after God's own heart. A righteous man, not one that had a works righteousness according to the law, but one with a gospel righteousness. You see, Christians, those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, really are, in a sense, righteous. Not by the perfect, inflexible standard of the moral law, but according to the gospel, wherein God accepts their good works and their sanctification, though imperfect, so long as it is sincere. And so the Apostle John writes, Little children, let no man deceive you. Uh, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. There is a real sense that we in this room that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are righteous in Christ Jesus for, through his sanctifying work uh, by his spirit. Of course, this is not the grounds of our salvation, nor does it merit anything before God, but it's a real work that's going on in our hearts. And, and David, knowing this and, and having experienced the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, is able to come to the Lord with boldness and to pray unto him in the name of Christ. And he pleads unto him. He says that he's called upon the Lord. And he knows, verse 6, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. He is certain that God will hear him. And we will see what the source of this confidence is. 
David being afflicted, being oppressed. Verse 9, he, he prays for uh, protection from the wicked that oppress him, from his deadly em- uh, enemies that surround him. They are like lions, greedy for their prey, lurking in secret places. But also notice that even in this, David acknowledges that these wicked men that oppress him are God's, merely God's instrument. Notice in verse 13, he says, Arise, O Lord, disappoint him. Cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. Yes, the wicked, even the wicked that oppress us, are the sword of the Lord, God's instrument. It's all God's doing. He directs all things uh, in his good providence, ultimately for our good. He directs even the sins and the sinful inclinations. Not that he causes no man to sin, but he directs uh, that he might use uh, their sinful actions for his good purposes. And so from the men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. David acknowledging that these wicked men are God's hand, God's instrument, whereby he purges and afflicts his own soul. Uh, but also acknowledging that God is righteous. You see, God will, at once, he will use the wicked to afflict, but also punish the wicked for their afflicting of the righteous. You can see an example of that in Isaiah chapter 10, where God uses the Assyrian army to uh, punish Judah, but then punishes the Assyrians for their cruelty against Judah as he directs all things according to his infinite wisdom. And these wicked, they are uh, filled with good things in this life. Oftentimes we have been perhaps like Asaph in Psalm 73, uh, being envious at the prosperity of the wicked. They, you look upon them, they seem to have no problems. They've got all that heart could wish, while you, on the other hand, are afflicted, struggling. Well, David here is not in that case. David here, he, he looks upon the wicked, seeing that they have uh, riches, they're full of children. See, at this time... Uh, children, even among the wicked, were, were viewed as a blessing, viewed as a, a good thing, viewed as something to boast in, to boast in how many uh, children uh, you have. I remember reading a, a quote from an old Stoic philosopher that said, uh, he that has more children is mightier than he that has less. At one time, even pagans acknowledged this truth that, uh, not saying that if you have less children, you're not as mighty, but they saw the goodness of children. And so these wicked men were full of children. And yet, verse 15, as we come to our first point, the contrast of David's hope, he says, as for me. The wicked might have all the riches in the world. They might have uh, children in abundance and wealth to leave unto them. They might live at ease. But as for me, my hope, my hope for satisfaction is in something else, something that these wicked men can never taste of. Worldly men we saw in verse 14, from men of the world, worldly men have their portion in this life. You see, as you look upon the prosperity of the wicked, remember this. Whatever good things they have, they have only in this life, and that's it. God will give them prosperity, perhaps. Let them live at ease and have riches. But there's coming a day, like the rich man in in, uh, Luke chapter 16, when he will lift up his eyes in hell and wish 
that instead of all of his riches and all of his peace and prosperity, he would have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, Lazarus, that poor uh, sick man who waited outside the temple for alms, he, although he suffered and he was poor and had nothing in his life, had the abundant riches of glory in heaven awaiting him. And so David, knowing that this truth, is able to make such a stark contrast between his hope and the hope of the wicked. They have their portion in this life, but David has God himself for his portion. God himself. We read this uh, several times in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 142, verse 5, says, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. As Christians, as believers, we have God himself for our portion. This term portion uh, refers to uh, the idea of uh, a certain thing that you have a legal right to. It's as though it's your inheritance. Think of the, uh, the, the children of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, how they all had a, a portion, a, a land allotted to them, and they had a legal right to it. They had a deed given unto it. It was theirs. We have a right unto God. He is ours. He has come and entered into covenant with us and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so he has entered into an unbreakable covenant with us. And so while the prosperity of the wicked is merely temporary, they might have riches, earthly goods, earthly prosperity, the blessing of the godly is everlasting. We have God himself for our portion to be enjoyed in this life partially and fully in glory. And so we can always contrast ourselves. When we have no uh, reason to be envious of the wicked, we can consider ourselves really more blessed, more rich than the richest pagan on the face of this earth. And I don't mean that as some kind of spiritual analogy. I mean that really. Christian, in Christ, you have more riches than Elon Musk. Heaven and earth is all yours. Really, you're a joint heir with Christ. There's coming a day when God will, will burn away all the wicked, all the, the dross of this earth, and everything will be ours. Romans chapter 8, if, he's, if God has freely given us his son, will he not freely give us also all things? How small is it for us to inherit the earth if we've been given the son of God? So we have no reason at all to be jealous of the wicked. The promises that we have uh, in Christ are more sure and certain than to receive a check or a trust fund. Just like the trust fund baby that has $25 million to be cashed out on their 22nd birthday doesn't really care too much about their grades or finding a job because they know they're set for life. We are set for eternity in Christ Jesus with the inheritance that's to be, to be paid out unto us in the day of glory. And so we can consider ourselves really richer, really more blessed than all the wicked put together. Though they seem to prosper in this life, though we might be afflicted, yet it's ultimately for our good. Also, we can be comforted in this fact, that the afflictions that we have in this life come from God's fatherly care. It, it might proceed for our sins from a kind of fatherly displeasure, but it's not coming from his, what we call, vindictive justice, whereby God's anger burns against sin and he must execute judgment upon sinners. No. 
That has been satisfied for us in Christ Jesus. And so the afflictions are, are merely the discipline of a loving father. But the afflictions of the wicked in this life are merely a taste of infinite more affliction to come, and unendingly in hell. And so, while they might seem to be at peace, might seem to have hope in their earthly portion, really they are hopeless without Christ. And therefore we, like David, can contrast ourselves and see ourselves as those that really have a blessing. But consider now the object of David's hope, what it is that David is really hoping for. He says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. David's hope is that he will see God. He will have that which Moses longed for when he said, I I pray thee, show me thy glory. David is certain that he himself will behold that glory. This is what we read about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where we read, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This blessed vision of God is what the theologians call the beatific vision. uh, The blessed vision of God. Beatific coming from that same uh, word of the beatitudes, the blessedness. The ultimate happiness is in seeing God. And when you understand this, Christian, you'll see that this is to be preferred above all comforts, above all uh, earthly prosperity. To see God himself brings the ultimate satisfaction to the soul as we will see. And so in this life, indeed, we long after Christ and we, 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 pant, we try to take hold, we take hold of him by faith. In this life, we walk by faith and not by sight. But friend, there is coming a time when we'll have faith no longer, but we will see face to face. It's exactly what we read in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we, we read that uh, from verse 8, Charity or love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there, there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child and understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I become, became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You see, uh, upon the earth we walk by faith. We we see partially. We, we grasp. We desire to know Christ. We long after him. And, and, and think about what that means. What, to know Christ, what do you have to do? Well, first of all, on a very basic level, you've got to learn how to read. Learn, learn to read your Bible. Struggle through the scriptures. Go through Leviticus and all those difficult parts. And, and, and try to understand what are all these sacrifices and ceremonies teaching me about Christ. And struggle in your in- intellect. And try to come up with a, a, a systematic understanding of the, the theology of the scripture. And even after you've toiled, uh, you can learn the languages. You can get a PhD in theology. For, uh, and, and yet you're still not going to have a perfect understanding. You're still going to have many errors. And only see partially. But there's coming a day, and this is David's hope. There's coming a day when he, like Paul, says, will see God face to face. And he will no longer walk by faith, 
but have sight. You, you, you notice in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, there's faith, hope, and charity, these three principal graces for the Christian. But the greatest of these is love or charity. Why is it that love is greater than faith and hope? Well, the reason is because love abides forever. When we no longer have a need to exercise faith, when we no longer have a need to long after Christ in hope, in, when we have him face to face, we will still love him. And so because love is eternal, love continues even into heaven, it is considered greater than faith. And this is also said to us in Romans chapter 8. It says, for uh, hope which is seen is not hope. For that which a man sees, why does he yet hope for? You only use hope when you don't have the thing. But once you have it, there's no more need for hope. You have sight. You no longer have to exercise faith because you have sight. So while indeed we walk by faith in this life in glory, we see face to face. And as we see in a mirror or glass darkly, we look forward to that day when we see clearly. And we are known even, and we know him even as he knows us. Christ ascended into heaven. Now beholds all of his saints with perfect clarity. And there's coming a time when we will behold him in the same way and we will be satisfied in that. This might raise a question. Our text says that he will behold the face of God in righteousness. Now, now what does this mean? Are we going to behold the physical face of, of God, the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, we know, I hope, that God is a spirit, not having a corporeal form, not having a physical body. But this term, the, the face of God, refers to knowing God's essence, knowing who he is. Through the scriptures, we come to know, as we gather together from different parts of scripture, different attributes of God, and we, got, we begin to learn about God's essence. But when we behold him face to face, we're not going to exercise, we need to exercise and toil in our intellects, struggling through the scriptures, listening to sermons and all these things. God will merely implant, as it were, a direct a knowledge of, our, of himself directly to our souls, and that will so fill us with joy and elation that we, as we begin to, as we have this knowledge of God in his, in his very essence. And really, this is the ultimate pleasure. In his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are there pleasures forevermore. To know God is the ultimate satisfaction for the human soul. We are, a classical definition of the human nature is rational animality. We are rational animals. That's what sets us apart from the other creatures. We have uh, intellect, whereby we reason, that's what, that's one of the marks of being made in the image of God. As such, the things that delight us the most are really those things that come into our intellect. Our, our soul has different faculties, an, an intellect, a will, and affections. The intellect ought to be uh, reigning supreme and then having direction over the will and the affections. And so, perhaps you've experienced a time when you've watched a docu documentary or learned something very interesting in school, and, and it's kind of a paradigm-shifting thing. 
Uh, it began to make you see the world in a different way. Uh, to, to understand that there's such a vast depth of knowledge for you to plumb. And there's a certain kind of indescribable joy in that. And, and a desire you want to know more. And as you learn more, there's a certain kind of delight. Something that you can't get from eating food or indulging in pleasures. Well, I tell you that knowing the depths of the essence of God, knowing Him as He is, provides for us infinite and unending pleasures. The, the angels enjoy at all times what we call the beatific vision. Jesus said, the angels do always behold the face of my Father. But even they have not had a complete understanding of the, divine, of the infinite divine essence of God's infinite nature. And even they, as they, saw, as they behold uh, the history of redemption unfold, they desire to look into these things. They desire to learn more, and they have more to light, more joy. And so as this knowledge of God comes into our souls, as we behold God in glory, it, it comes to our intellect as we, as we learn more of his essence. Our, our wills are moved to obedience, and our affections are, are filled with love. So our whole man is, is devoted unto God in righteousness. And so that it has this effect upon us, that in righteousness, that is in perfect sanctification, we will behold his, we will behold his glory, behold his face. This really is the, the, the thrust of the Apostle John as he writes in uh, 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Behold, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him as he is, in the fullness of his glory, we'll be changed into that same image. Beholding his glory will be changed from glory unto glory. We see this principle at work throughout the scriptures. What you behold, you become like. Psalm 115, those that worship and make idols are, become like them. And so it is as we behold God in this life by faith, through the scriptures, the means of grace, we become more and more like him. And when we see him perfectly, we'll be made perfect in righteousness. And so this beatific vision is our hope, what we're hoping for. We, we exercise faith in Christ so that we can be reconciled unto God and that we can glorify and enjoy him forever. We desire to glorify and to enjoy God, to behold his glory. In fact, this is Jesus' desire for us as well. Whereas Moses prayed for himself, show me your glory. And God said, no man can see my face and live. Christ prayed unto his father and said, I would, I desire that they would behold my glory. The glory which you have given me before the world was. And so really... Eternal life consists in knowing God. This is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The sum and substance of, of heaven, of the everlasting happiness that we are waiting for, is not streets of gold. It's not a glorified body in which we have no more pain and suffering and tears. But it's really to behold the glory of God and to delight in it. And as we delight in it, we simply see his beauty, his glory. We're, we're moved to obey. We're moved to love. And there could be no more sin in that place because we're simply beholding the glory of God made, made perfectly 
in his image as our sanctification is completed, as we are glorified. Unspeakable joys await us in heaven, not in anything corporeal or temporal, not even in being reunited with our loved ones, though, though, though that might be good, but in beholding the glory of God, having this beatific vision, this blessed sight. You see, the beauty of God is such that once you get a glimpse of it, and perhaps, Christian, I, I trust you've gotten a glimpse of it at times in your life, you realize that that's what you ought to long for, as we consider this morning, longing to see that glory, that there's nothing that can compare unto it, and how satisfying it will be. And so, if we long to see the glorious risen Christ and the glory of the triune God in glory in heaven, we ought to be taking pains, making every effort in this life to behold him by faith, to use the means of grace. If the joys of heaven consist in, in knowing God and beholding him by sight, seeing him face to face, if eternal life consists of knowing God, then shouldn't our great interest in this life now be in knowing him as well? Yes, we might have to see through a glass darkly, but we ought to, it ought to be precious to us. We ought to take any crumb from the master's table that we can get. And so we ought to desire to see the glory of the Lord. And as we all with open face beholding in a glass or in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, if we're longing for Christ, longing to be satisfied in this way, to behold his glory in heaven, we ought to behold God by faith now, making use of the ordinary means of grace. If heaven consists in glorifying and enjoying God forever, do we really want to go there for that's not our desire here and now? Consider now the effect of David's hope. Once this hope is obtained, once he sees the glory of God, he says, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Beholding the glory of God in heaven will produce the ultimate satisfaction. This really is our hope for everlasting satisfaction. Knowing that D David, knowing that he had this for his hope, knowing that he had this hope for everlasting satisfaction in God, he had a present confidence that God would hear him and answer his prayers. If God is going to reward me with himself, God is the ultimate good, the ultimate pleasure. If God is going to give me himself, then how much more is, easy is it going to be for him to answer my prayers, which is far less valuable than God himself? The beatific vision, this blessed sight, sight of God, is the source of ultimate pleasure. He says, when I awake, that is, when I awake in glory, David even is looking ahead into that day of resurrection, when he is resurrected and all the saints with him. And finally, that longing is fulfilled when they're united to their Savior forever, never to be separated again. When he awakes, he will be satisfied with thy likeness. The likeness. What is this likeness of God? 
Well, we know that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And the of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for our satisfaction. You see, God is goodness itself. God is the highest good. And the ultimate gift that he can give, the ultimate reward that he can give, is an enjoyment of himself. That is what was lost in the garden. That is what is restored in the gospel and advanced even beyond that which Adam ever enjoyed. Beholding the glory of Christ will be our ultimate satisfaction. And so as Christians, we should know this for certain, that God has sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, made of a woman, made under the law, coming in the fullness of time to bear the curse of the law that we might inherit the blessing of Abraham. And what was that blessing of Abraham? He said, I, I, God himself says, I am your great reward. And so the same God of Abraham is our God as well. Abraham need not to seek satisfaction in a son in Isaac, but in God himself. That's why Abraham was even willing when the Lord called upon him to offer up Isaac, his only begotten son. For he had God for his inheritance at his portion. This is why God in Isaiah 56 speaks to the eunuchs, those that can't have children, and comforts them saying, although you cannot have children, you have me, which is better. And if we have him, we can also know that we can have all things in him. And so, why then should we envy sinners? Envy those that are rich in this life, for we are far richer than they. Why then should we seek satisfaction in anything but God himself? Why then should we hope and dream about anything but the glory of God? We are called upon in Colossians chapter 3 to set our minds, set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth but on things in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What is on your mind? What occupies the majority of your thoughts? What are you hoping? What, what, what are you daydreaming for? Is it a comfortable life? Is it a beautiful spouse? A beautiful house? None of these things satisfy. All these things are vain in and of themselves. And so we have to set our minds upon Christ for that. And only in Him can we find this ultimate and everlasting satisfaction, which was David's hope and David's confidence. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have bestowed upon us such an incredible bounty. The benefits of salvation restored fellowship and reconciliation unto you and you yourself as our hope for everlasting satisfaction. As we long for that day when we, we behold your glory in all of its fullness, we pray, O oh God, that you would guide us upon this, uh, as we walk upon this earth, 
that we would seek satisfaction only in you, that we would long and pant after you, and that we would be confident knowing that you've given us the, the highest good in yourself, that you will therefore surely answer our prayers. We pray, O oh God, that you would be with us as we've heard and we've been fed from your word, that you would minister unto us, that you would take the seed that's been planted and water it and cause it to bring forth fruit, that we would go forth in the strength of Christ all this week and be strengthened and nourished thereby. We pray, O oh God, that you would stay the hand of the enemy, that he would not exact upon your people. We pray for the covenant children that were baptized this morning, that you would fulfill the promises made unto them uh, and sealed in their baptism, that you would cause them to come unto faith. We pray for all the children in, in this place, that you would raise up uh, mighty men and women of God in this place, that you would raise up those that would go forth and share the gospel, even ministers that would go forth and proclaim your gospel unto the ends of the earth, that your kingdom would be advanced and your name would be glorified. We give you thanks, O God, for this day. And we pray, O God, that we would continue to rest in Christ Jesus and the work that he's done uh, and enjoy uh, your goodness and your mercy that follows us all the days of our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.